0: Welcome to the Hope Collective Message Podcast, where we find a confident expectation of a better tomorrow in the character and promises of God. To learn more about who we are, visit thehopeco.com. Here's today's message.
1: So we go to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17 through 19. If you don't have a Bible, you always know when you come in, you can grab one off the shelf back there. Starting in verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods. God, big G, to God of gods, little g. Period. Isn't that good? And Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the alien. Giving him food and clothing. Other translations would say the stranger, the foreigner. And you, here it is. And you are to love those who are aliens. For you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. This is the word of God. And so God, we come and pray that it would penetrate our hearts, not our opinions, not our politics, not our culture, not what's simply affirming us from the outside, but what affirms us from the inside. And that is the son of God. That is Jesus. Jesus, come and inform our truth today. Come be our truth today because truth is a person. It's Jesus. And so Jesus, you again asked us to pray. And so we pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever amen amen you can be seated if you can we're gonna get get rolling here and dive in um it was back in 2018 um because of what was going in the on in the world with immigration and those um that that came under the the DACA legislation um, that I reached out to Pastor Luis who uh, meets here at one o'clock with his Spanish speaking church and said, what can we do as a church? Um, he and I then went and met with Chris Opus who is one of our missionaries in Little Village and sat down with him and said Chris how can we lean into the crisis that's happening how do we change our perspective I don't want a red perspective I don't want a blue perspective I want a biblical perspective what does God say he said you got to meet Matt Sorens I said who's Matt Sorens He said Matt just wrote a book called Welcoming the Stranger Called Matt. Matt was willing to meet with me, came here to Lake Zurich. I think we figured it was somewhere. We lost three years with COVID, somewhere in in that moment. And for the first time in my life, I got to hear. From someone who gets this whole thing in a way I've never been able to. Uh, Just released a book called Seeking Refuge on the Shores of Global Refugee Crisis. Wrote another book, uh, co-authored No Longer Strangers, Transforming Evangelism with Immigrant Communities. Um, Inalienable, How Marginalized Kingdom Voices Can Help Save the American Church. And then Welcoming the Stranger, Justice, Compassion, and Truth in the Immigration Debate. I think you know a lot more about this than I do. Uh, Matt is the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization for World Relief, meaning helps evangelical churches to understand the realities of refugees and immigration and how to respond in ways guided by biblical values. Also serves as the national coordinator for the Evangelical Immigration Table, a coalition that advocates for immigrat- immigration reforms consistent with biblical values. Folks, you need to hear what he has to say. Would you please welcome our friend Matt to the stage? Appreciate you. Thanks so
2: much for what you do. Thank you so much, Dave. It is wonderful to be here with you all. Uh, I don't know what it means that I'm the last week in a series on Kingdom Over Politics. Maybe that I've got the hardest issue to address. Um, but it is certainly true that for a lot of Americans and a lot of Christians, you hear the term immigration and the immediate response to the think of politics. Maybe to think if I'm on this team or that team, or some imagery of a a wall or a border. Um, But that's not necessarily where I start thinking about this issue. Um, I work, as Dave said, at a ministry called World Relief. World Relief actually was started about 80 years ago uh, because of a migration crisis, because of an incredible level of displacement in Europe after World War II. And... There was a church in Boston that basically said, we want to come alongside local churches in Europe to help to rebuild and to serve the refugees who'd come out of that crisis. And they worked with other churches in the National Association of Evangelicals to create a war relief commission. And within a few years, war relief became world relief and expanded its scope not just to the European crisis, but to situations of displacement and poverty and conflict all over the world. And then it fed forward a few decades. It was in the late 1970s, It's actually a missionary couple who had served uh, churches in Vietnam and were back in the States when Saigon fell in 1975 and they basically got phone calls and telegrams and letters from every church that they'd ever, all the people that they'd served in Vietnam who'd had to flee because they'd been allied with the United States and had to escape. And they basically knocked on every door of every church they could find and then within the U.S. government as well to be able to resettle many of those families to the United States. And in time, that effort um, came under the auspices of World Relief as well. And since that time in the late 70s, World Relief has worked with hundreds of local churches, thousands of local churches around the country to resettle about 300,000 refugees. Uh, We're one of nine agencies that works with the U.S. State Department to do that, um, including here in Chicagoland. Um, Unfortunately, not right here in Lake Zurich, but we've got offices on the north side of Chicago and in DuPage County and in Aurora. Our mission at World Relief is not to resettle refugees or to help immigrants integrate into communities, though we want to do both those things really well. Our mission is to empower local churches to serve the vulnerable. But precisely because the primary way we've done that, through serving refugees and other immigrants, has become such a political issue for so many Americans, and we know that that's reached into the church as well, a few years back we were kind of wondering how are people in local churches thinking about this topic of immigration? What's informing their views? And so we hired a Christian polling firm called Lifeway Research to survey self-described evangelical Christians throughout the United States. I wanted to start with one of the findings from that survey. I won't go through all of the findings, but probably the most troubling statistic we came up with from that survey. We asked self-described evangelicals, what's the most important factor influencing your views on the arrival of immigrants to your community? And only 12% managed to come up with the Bible. In fact, the people designing the survey for us told us up front, you know, if you ask evangelical Christians any question and one of the choices is the Bible, they know that's the right answer. And they're going to check that box. Whether it's totally true or not, that's just like, you know, that's the Sunday school answer. But actually, the Bible, my local church, the views of national Christian leaders, those three options combined came up less often than the media. So by our own admission, for most people in most of our churches, We've thought about this from the perspective of CNN or Fox News or the local newspaper or Facebook or Twitter, but too rarely have we thought about it from the perspective of the Bible. And I love that that's the framing for this whole series, is how do we start with God's kingdom and let that influence how we think about policies and politics rather than the other way around. So this morning, or this afternoon, I'm not sure what time it is, this morning, (laughs) uh, I want to just look at some of the big themes that might inform how we think about this issue as followers of Jesus. And I'll start with this. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, we are followers of an immigrant, of a refugee. Um, On the screen, we can go to the next slide. That image is a nativity set that my wife and I got as a wedding present. And we bring that out every December. And a few years back, my daughter, Zipporah, she's probably three years old, this just became her favorite toy for the month of December. You know, we've read her the Jesus Storybook Bible enough that she knows the whole Christmas story quite well, and she'll act it out cute little animals and shepherds and wise men and baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph and an angel. But Zippy turned to us one day and said, Dad, this nativity set is missing someone. We don't have the angry king. And I thought about that. Do any of you have a nativity set with a King Herod figurine? Maybe not our favorite part of that story. It's much more pleasant to celebrate Christmas with the story ending with... The Magi, the wise men, bowing down before Jesus with their gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then we can all go home and have a nice Christmas dinner and exchange some presents, because even Jesus got presents. But, of course, in Matthew chapter 2, that's not where the story ends. Because as soon as the Magi are on the way back to their country, Joseph is warned in a dream that Herod, this paranoid, tyrannical Middle Eastern king, is coming to kill all the little boys in Bethlehem. And Joseph is told to get up in the middle of the night, take... Mary and Jesus and escape across the border into Egypt outside of Herod's domain where they would be safe. And in that sense, at least, Jesus was a refugee. Uh, of course, they didn't have a formal legal definition of a refugee then, uh, as we do now, but he meets the definition now. So I'll, I'll go through a few definitions because I think as we talk about this topic, it's helpful. Um, first of all, an immigrant. An immigrant is simply someone who is gone from one country to reside in another country. It's a broad blanket term. A refugee is a subset of all immigrants. It's people who have fled their country, specifically because of a credible fear of persecution on account of their race, religion, political opinion, national origin, or social group, at least in the way the US legal law defines a refugee. An asylum seeker is another term that you may have heard in the news. An asylum seeker is someone who professes to be a refugee who gets themselves to a country and says, please don't send me back because I have a credible fear of persecution for one of these reasons. Until such time as the appropriate government can verify that claim, they're not considered a refugee, but an asylum seeker. And now, so was Jesus a refugee or an asylum seeker? I mean, we don't know from the Gospel of Matthew how, if at all, Joseph and Mary interacted with the governing authorities there in Egypt. We don't know how they were treated. We don't know if they were welcomed. We don't know if Joseph heard something like, you know what, Joseph, we've got enough carpenters in this economy without you taking a job. That's all speculation. But what's not speculation is that for more than 100 million people in our world who've been displaced, who've had to flee their homes, many of whom across a border into a new country, they have someone in Jesus who can very personally identify with that plight. And that ought to inform how we think about people coming into our own community who might have fled something very similar. Another core biblical theme, and this is one you've already talked about in this series, is the idea that every human person is made in the image of God. Yes. And Christians have historically understood this to mean that human life is, it has value. It has dignity. It is worth protecting at, regardless of any qualifier, regardless of your age or your stage of development, your gender, your country of origin, your religion, any other factor. If you are a human person, your life is precious and worth protecting. And that gives us an obvious motivation if someone's fleeing from violence, the people who are fleeing from the the war right now in Ukraine, or who had fled from the Taliban in in the last year, Uh, people fleeing from gang violence in Central America, when people are fleeing from the threat of persecution, we would have an obvious motivation as Christians to want to protect that human life, if we possibly could. But then there's another dynamic being made in the image of God that I think is relevant to how we think about immigration, and that is that because human beings are made in the image of a creator, we also have potential to create, and to contribute. And that's not just true for immigrants, but it is certainly true of immigrants. Uh, and I, I think it's worth highlighting because often when we talk about immigration issues in the US, the conversation very quickly goes to, well, what is this going to cost? What are those people going to take? You know, how many jobs will those people take? Those are fair questions. But really, they're only fair questions if we're concurrently asking the question, what are they going to create? Yeah. What will they contribute? That's good. And the reality is, if you look at American history, they'll probably contribute a lot. Yeah. Uh, in fact, over the, if you look at Fortune 500 companies in the United States, 44% were founded or co-founded by an immigrant or their child. All sorts of huge American companies that employ hundreds of thousands of people in this country wouldn't be American companies, might not exist at all, if it wasn't for our country's heritage of immigration. Or to bring it down to a a fiscal level, you know, sometimes there's a question of, well, can our country afford this? And the reality is, like, let's look particularly at refugees. So again, this is a subset of all immigrants uh, who are brought to the United States, particularly because they have fled a credible fear of persecution. And unlike a lot of other immigrants, refugees who are resettled to the U.S. get some uh, assistance from the U.S. government when they first arrive. So there are some costs involved. In fact, if you looked at the average uh, refugee one year after arrival, they would almost always have received more from the American taxpayer than they have paid in. The same is true, by the way, of my one-year-old son, Zacchaeus. He's a total drain on the economy. Um, He hasn't worked a day in his life. He he is recently walking. Um, But that's a little silly, right? We don't look at people at one snapshot in time. We look at people over a horizon of time. And when economists do that, some economists at Notre Dame did this looking at refugees resettled to the United States, they found that it's on average for resettled refugees at about year 7 or 8 that they start to pay in more than they receive. Uh, So the net effect by 20 years after arrival is the average refugee adult has contributed about $21,000 more in taxes at all levels than the combined cost of governmental expenditures on their behalf. And that ends up being true if you look at a broader range of immigrants as well. There are absolutely costs, and it's worth counting those costs on an economic level, but it doesn't make sense to just do a cost analysis. You've got to do the cost-benefit analysis, which is what the economists who look at this do. And almost all economists think that the net economic impact of immigration for the United States is actually very positive. In fact, even if you look specifically at immigrants who are here unlawfully, which is probably the most controversial category of immigrants, Uh, 96% of economists surveyed by the Wall Street Journal a few years back said that the net economic impact of illegal immigration is positive for the United States. Now again, that's not the reason that World Relief, we care for immigrants, is because we think it's in our economic interest. We do so because they're made in the image of God and their life has value and it's worth protecting. But it is precisely because people are made in the image of a creator God that we shouldn't be surprised that people also bring creative abilities to contribute to our communities as well. Another core biblical theme, and we find this especially in the Old Testament, is that God has a particular concern and love for those who are vulnerable. Uh, We heard this in the passage that Dave read a few minutes ago from Deuteronomy chapter 10, which to summarize is basically, I love those who are vulnerable, the the fatherless, the widow, the alien, or depending upon your translation, the, the, the immigrant, the sojourner, the stranger, the foreigner, and you shall love them as well. And we find those same three groups of people, the fatherless, the widow, the foreigner, more than a dozen times in the Old Testament. God not only makes it very clear that he loves these people and wants his people to as well, but then he goes on to establish specific rules, laws, for the people of Israel uh, to make sure that the needs of these vulnerable categories of people would be met. So, for example, he tells the people of Israel, when you go through your crops, your olives, your wheat, your grapes, go through everything one time, and then leave what remains for the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. Uh, which was kind of an ingenious system. It wasn't just a handout system. People still had to do some work. But it was a means by which these particular categories of people, who, if you think about it, were not likely to be landowners in an agrarian society where your ability to provide for yourself was tied to the land, would have the, the possibility to meet their most basic need for food. And you see this when you fast forward into the Old Testament, you get to the story of Ruth, who's both a widow and a foreigner and what does she do when she comes into the people of israel she goes and she gleans in the field which might seem a little weird if you don't know that background but this is basically what the system that was set up for her another command that starts in the old testament carries on into the new testament is the command to love our neighbors as ourselves and we're all familiar with that command hopefully we see it in its first instance in leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 And I I kind of suspect that God knew that the people of Israel, much like many of us, would have the tendency to want to narrowly define who our neighbor was, who we had to love. So it's just a few verses later in verses 33 and 34 that God says, When foreigners reside with you in your land, you shall not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you shall be to you as your native born. You shall love them as yourselves, for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. And then that carries into the New Testament where Jesus is asked in the Gospels, well, what's the greatest commandment? And he says it's to love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. But the the lawyer, the legal scholar in Luke 10 who's interrogating him here tells us where he's coming from in the text. It says he wants to justify himself. So we kind of know where he's coming from when he asks the follow-up question. Who is my neighbor? Clearly he would like a very precise legal definition So that he can demonstrate that he has met this requirement. Maybe your neighbor is someone three doors down on either side, as long as they're of the same language and ethnicity and religion as you. And, you know, that might still be challenging, but at least, like, you'd have some parameters there. We could all work on that. And if that was really hard, we'd just move. (laughs) But that was not the, the definition that Jesus gave. Instead, he responds with a story, a story that most of us are familiar with. It's the story we think of as the Good Samaritan, where there is this presumably Jewish person beaten robbed, left to die on the side of the road to Jericho. And a priest and a Levite, the religious leaders of the time, they come by, they see him in need, but they pass by on the other side. And then a Samaritan, someone who is ethnically different, someone who is religiously different, not just different, but errant, comes by, sees this man in need, has compassion on him, and takes him to get help. And Jesus says, well, which of these three was a neighbor to the man who was in need? And of course, the answer is the Samaritan. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. And one obvious takeaway for us is we don't get to narrowly define who our neighbor is. Uh, because it's pretty clear from Jesus' example that our neighbor, among and many other people, could be a, a vulnerable traveler of a different ethnicity and different religious tradition. That's precisely the model that Jesus gave us. It's also worth noting that Jesus doesn't say, love your neighbor so long as it's completely safe. Because if you think about it, it wasn't particularly safe for the Samaritan to stop on the side of a road that scholars tell us actually had kind of a bad reputation. This was a dangerous road that you didn't wanna be on late at night. Uh, It's easy to criticize the the priest and the Levite in that story, but if I'm really honest, if my wife and kids were on some dangerous road late at night with a bad reputation, my, I think, prudent uh, advice for them from a human perspective would be, well, get out of there as quickly as you you can. Well, if you saw somebody in need, maybe you should call somebody but don't stop and linger, don't put yourself at risk. But the hero of the story, the example of loving our neighbor is someone who did stop and put himself at some risk. And I hear that, I think of some of the churches that World Relief has partnered with over the years, we're doing so now in, in Ukraine and in neighboring countries, we've done so historically in the Middle East and different parts of Africa, who are caring for incredible numbers of displaced people who've recently crossed an international border and who have not in every case gone through a thorough vetting process. There wasn't always time for that. And they're caring selflessly, not because they're sure it's safe, but because, frankly, they were never under the impression that following Jesus was going to be safe. Which, that stings a little bit to me as as an American, because safety is a super high cultural value in the United States. We close our emails with statements like, take care, be safe, which are very nice sentiments, but not necessarily biblical commands. The biblical commands are, take courage, be not afraid. And not because we love our, or trust our government so much, but because of who our God is. And the irony in all of that is when we talk about welcoming refugees or immigrants in the U.S., it's really different than in Africa or in the Middle East. It's actually really, really safe. We would be called to love people even if it wasn't, but it is really safe. So a few examples of that. One of the concerns we hear a lot at World Relief is specifically related to refugees being resettled to the United States is, well, what about terrorism? How do we know that those people aren't terrorists? Well, the reality is there, we have an incredibly thorough governmental process to vet people who come into the United States through the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program. It's a very, very small share. In the last few years, less than one-tenth of one percent of the world's refugees who get selected for a settlement. And everyone that does goes through a process that groups like the Heritage Foundation and others have affirmed is the most thorough vetting that our government has for any category of visitor or immigrant who comes into the United States. And it's been remarkably effective. Since the Refugee Act was signed into law back in 1980, there's been about three million refugees resettled to the United States, and not a single one has taken the life of an American citizen in a terrorist attack. Now, that's not to say it's a perfect vetting system where it can't be constantly improved or that it's not fair for us as citizens to ask those questions. My fear is sometimes we've so focused on those questions of is this safe, and maybe not looked very hard for the answers, that we've forgotten to ask the question that was asked of Jesus, which is, who is my neighbor? And if it's a family from Afghanistan, or from Syria, or from Ukraine, or from the Congo, arriving at the airport at O'Hare, to be there to welcome them, and to help them adjust to life in a new community. Now, it would be fair, as we talked about immigration, I mentioned refugees of this particular subset of immigrants. Well, what about immigrants who didn't go through the most thorough vetting process that we have? What about someone who basically snuck across the border, and was never inspected by our government? Isn't that a concern? And I would say, I think that is a concern. We've been really clear at World Relief for many years that we think it's an appropriate function and appropriate expectation of government to ensure secure borders, to know who's coming into the country, and to do everything reasonably possible to keep out anyone who would be seeking to do harm. What's not necessarily fair to presume is that those people who have come unlawfully or, or who have overstayed a temporary visa are disproportionately a threat to public safety. And I say that because we have a lot of data on that question. Most undocumented immigrants, there's probably about 11 million living in the United States right now, most have been here for at least 10 years, which is to say if their intention was to commit crime, they've had adequate time to do so, and most have not done so. A few have, of course, and when it happens, you've seen it in the news, it tends to make the headlines in a way that very rarely is a U.S. citizen commits murder. Uh, We don't tend to think that's relevant when it's a citizen, but the reality is immigrants don't commit crime at higher rates than U.S. citizens. In fact, regardless of legal status, they commit crimes at lower rates than US citizens, uh, and the best evidence for that actually comes out of Texas, um, and the reason for that is Texas happens to be the only state out of 50 that tracks the immigration legal status of felony convictions. So I would share the Illinois data with you, but it doesn't exist. But there's no particular reason to think that Texan immigrants are particularly different than Illinois immigrants. Uh, I know you cannot read those numbers, but the blue category is lawfully, or is, I'm sorry, US-born citizens, so my category. The red category is lawfully present immigrants, that includes refugees, but others who have legal status as well. And the green category is those who are undocumented or unlawfully present. And what you'll notice is the blue category is on top um, in almost all cases for various kinds of crime, violent crime, property crime, drug violations. Now I don't tell you that so that you'll be afraid of your US citizen neighbors. You are called to love them as yourself just to say that it's not particularly rational to be uniquely afraid of your immigrant neighbors, regardless of if you think you know what their legal status is. But again, our call would be to love our neighbors, even if it wasn't completely safe. Now, that brings up another biblical question, though, because most of us you know, would agree, okay, we should love and welcome people, we want to share the gospel with people, but we also want to follow the law. And so when you have a subset of immigrants who are unlawfully present, they have broken a law to come to this country or by overstaying a visa, how do we think about that biblically? There's biblical guidance there. And again, all these passages about loving and welcoming people, but also Romans chapter 13 tells us that everyone everyone must be subject to the governing authorities. It tells us that God has established government for a purpose, to maintain order and security. So should we love and welcome people or should we follow the law? Nobody ever shouts the answer, because it's a hard one, right? Well, it's not that hard. The answer is yes. Uh, Unfortunately, there's not the contradiction that I think we might presume that there is between those ideas. There's nothing in federal law or in the law of the state of Illinois that tells you that if you suspect one of your neighbors is not here lawfully, you need to report that to someone. That law doesn't exist. There's nothing legally that prevents you from having your neighbor over for a meal and being their friend, regardless of what you think their legal status may or may not be. There's nothing that prevents a church from running an English class or uh, baptizing someone or serving them communion or teaching them Sunday school or letting them teach Sunday school to you. Uh, As long as there's not compensation involved. That's where it does get to a legal issue in terms of employment. But in terms of any of the normal ministry that a church or a nonprofit would do or just an individual citizen would do, uh, we can love and welcome people and we're not out of subjection to the laws of our country. Now, this is a harder issue for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are undocumented immigrants. And there's a lot of those people, especially in in a place like Chicagoland. Uh, I go to a Spanish-speaking church, and I know that this affects, I don't know, you know, I don't ask everyone their legal status, but I know that it affects people in my congregation who I worship with every week. One of the things that I think has been really important for me, and frankly that I didn't understand until I worked as a legal counselor for many years for World Relief, is that the vast majority of immigrants who are not lawfully present are desperate to get right with the law. It's not a matter of being you know, casual disregard for law or that they just didn't know what the right form to fill out was. Um, it's that in almost all cases, and our legal, my colleagues who do legal services help to find the very rare exceptions, but in almost all cases, people are unlawfully present because they didn't qualify to change their status for lawful status or to come lawfully in the first place. So real quickly and with the caveat that in this one minute summary of immigration law, please don't give people legal advice off of this um, because it is complicated. But there's basically four ways you come lawfully as an immigrant to the United States. And I think it's worth knowing this because we tend to tell people, go back and come the legal way. Well, this is what we're talking about. You can come with a family sponsor. That means you've got a US citizen or a lawful permanent resident with their green card who can file a petition for a close relative. Close relative meaning spouse, sibling, parent of a child over the age of 21, or a child. Not your grandparents, not your cousins, not some extended family members. Sometimes that's a fast process, like maybe a year or two. That's fast in immigration law. Uh, Sometimes it's a very long process, 20 to 30 years, for an adult child, for example, of of a citizen who was originally from Mexico. Um, But that's not an option for a lot of people, they don't have a relative. So your next option is an employer sponsor. Under the U.S. law, there are 140,000 employer-sponsored immigrant visas available each year. All but 5,000 of those are specifically designated for people classified as highly skilled. So if you're coming to work in the back of a restaurant or in agriculture or taking care of someone's kids, you're competing with the rest of the world for 5,000 visas a year. And basically your chances of getting an employer-sponsored immigrant visa are basically zero. The third possibility is refugee or asylum status. So we talked about what it means to be a refugee, but again, that means you fled persecution, not fled poverty. And you have to be very lucky, because even if you are indeed a refugee, there's now more than 30 million refugees globally who meet the legal definition, and last year the United States resettled uh, somewhere around 12,000. So very, very small share who make the cut. And that leads you to asylum, which is for people who make it to the United States, to the border or on a temporary visa within the United States, and make the case proactively to the United States government, I have facing a credible fear of persecution. And frankly, it's partially as the US has taken fewer refugees, we've seen a lot more people come to the border and say, I want to seek asylum, because there are uh, no fewer people fleeing persecution in our world, but fewer slots for being identified overseas. And the last possibility is something called the Diversity Visa Lottery. This is an online lottery. Pre-COVID, the odds of winning were something like 1 in 400 which is better than one of those scratch-off games at a gas station, but not very good. And you can't enter this lottery if you're from Mexico, or El Salvador, Guatemala, India, China, Canada, any of the countries that already send the most immigrants to the United States. And I go through that, I think of a guy who um, was in my neighborhood for many years. Uh, Well, he's a Christian now. He wasn't a Christian when he came to this country. He came at a point of economic desperation, trying to provide for his family, Uh, more than 20 years ago, probably 30 years ago now. And at some point after coming unlawfully into the country, he met Jesus. Someone shared the gospel with him. He started reading his Bible. It transformed his life. But he also read Romans 13, and it made him really uncomfortable. He wants desperately to be right with the law. And he's talked to lawyers. He's talked to our legal counselors at World Relief, and we ask him lots of personal questions uh, and determine basically, nope, you don't qualify for any of these processes. You can go back to Mexico. That's definitely possible. You cannot go back to Mexico and come back the legal way. Not in one year, not in five years, not in 10 years. You simply don't qualify. It's not a matter of having the right lawyer or the right amount of money. You don't fit the categories. And he's wrestling with this because he wants to be right with the law. He wants also to keep his marriage together. And his wife isn't feeling quite the same conviction on this that he is. And he thinks God would want him to keep his marriage together. He, you know, his kids who were born here, frankly, if he were to go back to Mexico, they would finish on in high school and the only language they've ever been educated and go on to college and be separated from their dad. And he doesn't think that's the father he wants to be. And even biblically, it says in First Timothy that if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So that's weighing on him, along with be subject to the governing authorities. Now, I don't, I'm not going to tell you I have the right answer in every one of those circumstances, but what I would say is, I would love to be able to tell my friend, here's how you make this right. Here's how you fix this. Here's the form that you fill out. Here's the fine that you need to pay, because you broke a law. And to be clear, he's not looking for an amnesty that said, you broke the law, but the law doesn't matter in this country. He would be willing to pay just about any fine possible. In fact, he's already wasted a bunch of money on fake lawyers promising things that were too good to be true and were not true. An incredibly common situation that our, my colleagues who do legal services see. Um, and that's actually what World Relief has said for a long time. And when it comes to those policy questions, you know, we think the law matters, so we're not saying an amnesty is the right solution. We're saying, what's well, a process where people could come forward, pay a fine as restitution for having violated the law, and then earn the chance to stay lawfully in the United States? If you pair that with, sure, make it harder to immigrate illegally, we should have secure borders, but also make it easier to immigrate legally, um, especially, frankly, at a time when we have millions of more jobs in this country than we have people looking for work. It would just be in our own interest to have a legal system that was, had been updated since 1990 in terms of the number of visas available. All of that goes back to Romans 13 because the unique thing for those of us who are citizens is we read be subject to governing authorities a little bit differently than the Roman church because the authorities in this country invite us to speak into those policy questions. Um, they invite us to, be, to guide our elected officials on what we think policies should look like. And our hope is we do so not first and foremost as Republicans or Democrats, but as followers of Jesus. One other uh, biblical theme that I think is worth thinking about as we think about these issues of refugees and immigration is that, in many ways, immigration is revitalizing the American church. And I think that's maybe news to a lot of American Christians, but if you look at the countries where immigrants come from, they tend to be countries that are, by any measure, more Christian than the United States is at this point, at least in the term, sort of the share of the population who profess to follow Jesus, church attendance. Many of those are people who actually were persecuted for their faith in their country of origin, and that's how they ended up as refugees or seeking asylum. A friend of mine who I, I uh, met some years ago was in a Honduran youth pastor. Uh, was so good at his job as being a youth pastor at uh, drawing people away from the gangs into Jesus that the gangs started threatening his life. And he came up to the United States through one of those caravans you've heard about on TV, waited about a year in Mexico, and eventually was granted asylum uh, because of the persecution he was fleeing from. Now he's living in Texas. Or if you look at refugee resettlement, so people identified abroad, uh, the plurality of refugees resettled to the United States in the last 10 years have been Christians of one sort or another. And many of them became refugees because they were first Christians. In fact, the top country of origin for refugee resettlement in the last decade is Burma, also known as Myanmar, Southeast Asia, primarily Buddhist country with a really repressive military government that does not tolerate religious minorities, Uh, But it is because they have been very intolerant of Christians as well as some other religious minority groups that about 70% of the Burmese refugees resettled to the United States have been Christians. Largely Baptists and Anglicans, some Catholics. I've had some of those folks as my neighbors. In the apartment where I lived in Glen Ellen for a number of years, there was a Karen Burmese Baptist Church that met in the apartment just underneath mine. And I would know that church was happening because there'd be about 30 or 40 sets of shoes outside of the apartment. You don't wear your shoes in the house if you're Burmese. That's one of these cultural things and really loud worship music, which I might have been tempted to complain about if it wasn't worship music. I've had some of those neighbors at my door to make sure that I know who Jesus is. And frankly, though I've been a Christian basically my whole life, I've had so much to learn about following Jesus from sisters and brothers who uh, have been forced out of their homes, forced out of their country. Most of those Burmese folks lived in a refugee camp for a decade or longer before they were invited to the United States. Uh, That's actually the theme of the newest book I've got, Inalienable, is how do we actually not just serve immigrants, but learn from them? Because they have so much to offer to the American church. When we welcome those brothers and sisters in Christ, there's also a sense in which we are actually welcoming Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 25, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. And the disciples say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or sick or in prison or a stranger? And Jesus says, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it unto me. It's also worth noting that uh, as the U.S. has decided to resettle far fewer refugees in the last few years, that's impacted the persecuted church abroad as well. Uh, A few years ago, World Relief did a study with Open Doors USA, and we can put it up on the screen here. You won't be able to read the precise numbers, but basically we looked at the number of Christian refugees of any Christian tradition resettled to the United States as refugees Um, going back to 2015 from the 50 countries where Christians face the most severe persecution in the world. So high on that list are Burma, Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, North Korea, some of the countries you'd expect. Uh, The numbers went from more than 18,000 Christian refugees in 2015. By 2020, it had declined by more than 90%. And we haven't, uh, it hasn't rebounded significantly since then. Uh, So there's a sense when we shut down refugee resettlement, we're actually closing the door to persecuted Christians who are needed sa- of safety. But let's be honest. If this was all about persecuted Christians, I don't think this topic would be quite so controversial for American Christians. But the reality is a lot of American Christians hear are refugee, and they think about Afghans, Syrians, uh, people of, of a Muslim background. Now, that hasn't actually necessarily been the reality for who are most refugees coming to the United States, but it is a significant minority of refugees who come to the United States. It will be with Afghans for the last year, a majority Muslim population. And some Americans see that as a threat. Our view at World Relief has always been that this is actually an incredible opportunity for the church. Uh, We rightly think about the Great Commission to go make disciples of all nations and we try to send people as missionaries to other parts of the world to contexts where it is against the law to share your faith and it's against the law for someone to hear that and decide to follow Jesus. And we should do that. But we have missed something profound if we don't notice that God and his sovereignty has brought people from all those nations to the United States, to a context where we are blessed with religious freedom, which is to say we are free to share our faith and people are free to receive it or to reject it. And to be clear, we don't do proselytism at World Relief. We don't trick people into following Jesus. We don't say we'll serve you better if you pray this prayer. But we do believe in evangelism, which is not a hard, you know, a a coercive effort to convert someone, but an open invitation. And we find that often, that opportunity comes as a response to questions. Because when it's a team from a local church that's met a family at the airport and walked through them with them through that adjustment process to life in a new country and genuinely loved them as our neighbors, which we would be called to do whether they would ever share our faith or not. Right. But when we do that well, it's rare that sooner or later there's not the question of why. And we get to, as 1 Peter 3.15 says, to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason and for the hope that is within you. J.D. Payne, who's a missiologist, says that something is missionally malignant whenever we're willing to make great sacrifices to travel the world to reach a people group, but then are not willing to walk across the street. And I would say there's a particular opportunity here for the church, as in the last few years, uh, well, the last 10 months, really, uh, the largest group of people arriving to the U.S. having fled persecution is from Afghanistan. Uh, Afghanistan happens to be the only country in the world where less than 5% of the population personally knows a Christian. Not less than 5% are Christians, there's actually a number of countries in that category, but less than 5% say they know a Christian. And they've come here to a country where a whole bunch of people call ourselves Christians. But we can't presume that that's an automatic uh, dynamic because in North America, it's still true that 60% of people of non-Christian religious traditions say they do not personally know a Christian. And we might say, wow, those people need to get out more. Like there's a bunch of Christians in the suburbs of Chicago. But maybe we need to put the mirror up to ourselves. Maybe we need to say, are we going into the air neighborhoods, getting to know them, loving them as our neighbors, and looking for opportunities to point people to the hope of a relationship with Jesus. Yes. And again, a bunch of refugees will share the gospel right back at you, because many of them are already believers, but many others will be encountering the, the story of Jesus for the first time. So I want to close before we uh, just do a, f- a few minutes of Q&A with a few ways we can apply this. One is just, and this is, you know, it's going to depend where you're at, how you want to think about responding to this, but one thing I think we could all do is to say, let's learn a little bit more. I think of my job at World Relief as basically trying to address that uh, dynamic where a fairly small share of American Christians think about this issue from a biblical perspective. So we've put together this 40-day Bible reading guide. Hopefully the QR code will work for you there. Um, You can also find it on um, the versions Bible app if you search for I Was a Stranger there's be 40 Bible verses one day after another that relate in one way or another to the theme of immigration. And we've tried to be as balanced as we can in selecting those verses. Romans 13 is there, be subject to the governing authorities. There's not a verse about how we should hate immigrants because God hates them. That's not our editing bias, that's just not in the Bible. Um, the Bible does have a sort of bias in this direction. Another way to be involved is say, hey, I could volunteer. I could give some of my time. Uh, World Relief, we're a little ways from here. Our closest office is either the north side of Chicago or... Uh, DuPage County, but we have new families arriving all the time who basically need friends, who need people who could say, "Hey, I could be there a week or an hour a week, and you know help this family learn English or help their kids with homework." There's, we have like dozens of volunteer opportunities. So there's also great ministries closer to you that could help you connect to immigrants in your community, and that's not just for you to help them, but also for you to learn from them and to take this from being an abstract issue uh, to being something that has flesh and bones and is you know people made in the image of God. The last thing I would say is you could help to sustain the work that we do at World Relief. Um, whether you... Maybe you're not in a place where you could give up a couple hours a week, but you could give up 20 bucks a week. And that would allow you to come alongside our staff and dozens and dozens of local churches here in Chicagoland, including a lot of immigrant churches that are caring really selflessly for their newly arrived neighbors and helping them to immigrate into community, integrate into communities. Um, So you can, the PATH is our monthly giving community. You can see the QR code there. If that's something you could could be a part of, we'd love to have you join us. I'll close with this quote uh, from President Reagan. Uh, This was actually President Reagan's farewell address in 1989. He said this, I've thought a bit of the shining city upon a hill. In my mind, it was a tall, proud city built on rocks, stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds, living in harmony and peace. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. Now, I've always really liked that quote. I find it kind of inspiring, sort of roughly describes the sort of immigration policy that I would like to see us get back to. But I would also like to quibble with President Reagan just a little bit. Because elsewhere in that speech, he cites that phrase, a shining city on a hill, to the early Puritan colonist John Winthrop, who did use that phrase, but it is not its original source any of you've read your Bibles, you know where that idea of a city on a hill comes from. Uh, It's from Matthew chapter 5, and it was the words of Jesus. Importantly, not to the United States of America or to any other particular country, but to his earliest disciples, to the church in its earliest form. Jesus said this, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, there are tens of millions of people around our world today who have been forced to flee their homes. And a few of them will end up as your neighbors in Lake Zurich, Illinois, or elsewhere in this metro area. Most of them won't ever come to the United States. But they are watching the response of people who profess to be followers of Jesus. And they're making their opinions about who Jesus is based on our response collectively. Whether that response is one of apathy, or even fear or hostility, or one of hospitality, of welcome, of love, and of advocacy. And my prayer is that our response collectively here in the United States and all around the world would so reflect the love of Jesus for vulnerable people that people would be drawn to him. Our Father in heaven would be glorified as they see our response. With that, I'll turn it over to, to Dave. to We can do a few questions.
1: Can we say thanks to Matt? Um, I did not prepare you ahead of time, but for just five minutes here, we wanted to open it up. If this sparks something in you, um, I know there's strong opinions and thoughts around this, and I so appreciate, Matt, the biblical perspective that um, is balanced and yet truth if you have a question, you're saying, man, I'd love to ask this. This is on my heart, and, and it pertains to what we're talking about. Did you catch that? Pertains to what we're talking about. Um, we're going to take that right now. So if you just raise your hand, and we'll, uh, we'll make sure we can all the way back there. Go ahead.
2: Sure. I can get those to Dave, and he can distribute those um, however he would like.
1: Yep. We'll just put them on the on the message. Yeah. I work with Team Mother Choices,
2: and I have a young girl who is, um, she was here when she was two years old, she was brought from Mexico, and she tried to work with DACA, tried to get her papers, has been denied, and she's given up. Yeah. Um, is there anything she can do? Yeah. Uh, I appreciate that question. So just a real quick background. DACA, some of you, most of you have heard of. DACA was basically an administrative program, so not a law passed by Congress, but something that the Department of Homeland Security did back in 2012. In fact, you will hear news this week about the 10th anniversary of the DACA program. It allowed uh, undocumented immigrants who were brought as children before their 16th birthday, who met certain other qualifications, to apply not for a green card or permanent legal status, but for work authorization and a temporary deferral of deportation, which could be renewed. Uh, There were a bunch of legal challenges to the DACA program. The current status of the DACA program, as of last summer, is a judge in Texas ruled that DACA was created illegally, and he allowed it to stay in place for those who currently benefit from DACA, which is about 600,000 people nationally, pending appeals decisions, which we'll get in the... There's a hearing next month. But he closed new applications to people who had not previously applied, which tends to include people who were too young to apply, because you had to be 15 years old to apply. Um, And I I was just texting this morning with a guy from a church that I work closely with. He's in the same boat. He's he's got a private scholarship to go to college next year. But he's really wrestling with, should I go to college if I don't know if I can work when I finish my college degree? And I wish I could tell him I promise this will be resolved in four years. But I would have said that four years ago, and it's not then. I would say our view of world relief is this underscores why we actually need Congress to fix this, because no administration of any party can give someone a green card. That takes a change in law which requires Congress. And right now that means bipartisanship, which doesn't happen all that often in our society. But that's been our message to both Democrats and Republicans is you need to find a way to figure this out for people like that young woman, for whom, you know, who didn't even make the choice to come here. They brought as kids. Um, and frankly, at a time when we have so many jobs opening and we've publicly educated her presumably, why wouldn't we want her to go and use the skills that God has given her and that she's been educated for she can't get a regular job, she can't work lawfully. Most people in that situation will end up working without authorization because you still gotta pay rent and you know, that's a hard reality. Higher education is very rarely an option in that situation. Military service is not an option in that situation. Um, so that's that's been one of our most urgent concerns in terms of policy and we've, I mean, we, did a, we saw. I didn't do this poll, but there was a poll recently, if you paired together some improvements to border security, which most Americans think are a good idea, with a path to citizenship for people in that category of dreamers who are brought as children, and some improvements to the agricultural visa system, because right now we're all dealing with inflation that is significantly related to a lack of labor, especially in agriculture. If you fix all those things, 80% of Americans are supportive, including 80% of evangelical Christians. Getting that message to Congress is kind of a challenge, and that the people would actually be cheering if they fixed that, as opposed to upset with them and voting them out in a primary.
1: a yes. massive thing, and we're like, we want to help, yeah. and we don't also want to be the crusaders that yes. do
2: what we're doing,
1: so what would be a,
2: maybe a next step for us as a Yeah, community? it's a great question. I really appreciate that. I mean, I, I think everyone's going to be at a different spot, so some people, I would say, I don't want you uh, volunteering with World Relief until you've read those 40 Bible verses. Um, let's, like, start there, yeah. but for most of us, it might be, you need, like, one relationship. And that might, you know, we can help with that in the volunteering capacity, but it might just be you get to know the person, you know, at the your favorite Mexican grocery store or, yeah, or the the ways that you're serving already. Just get to know people. Not in, like, Don't lead with, like, so what's your legal status? That's probably going to scare people. <laughs> um, they might be wondering why you're asking that. But what's your story? So tell me about... Tell me about you know, who you are, wh- where do you work, what's your family like, and getting to know people as individuals. Again, for me, I lived in a, for about eight years in a neighborhood where almost all my neighbors were refugees, and then I moved to a neighborhood in Aurora where most of my neighbors are immigrants from Mexico primarily, and for me, having it be literally my neighbors who are having these stories, it really transformed my perspective on this issue. And if you can't do that, though, that would be my suggestion. Maybe it's read a good book that gets you into the narrative of what is life like for people in that circumstance. And then I would lean into you know I'm not here to tell you which policies matter, but do your homework on that and um, form your own opinions. But then let your elected officials know this is something that's important to me. Right.
1: That's good. Thank that's you. Good. Yep. Okay, uh, we'll do one more, Donna. Um, can I just help you question? What can I help answer
2: that? Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Hang on, hang on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, she's gonna help you out real quick. I appreciate quick. that.
0: Hi, Matt. We need to talk. Um, But getting involved in the Hope Center here at the Hope Collective is the biggest way that you can start. Um, Faith Protasio is also um, investigating and serving with Exodus Ministries here from the Hope Collective, and she's seeing um, three Afghanistan families right now who are all expecting new babies. Um, And I put on my Facebook how to help with that little virtual shower to make sure that these um, families have the needs that they need for the babies right now. Um, But we're linking alongside with them um, because she has an interest in it and she's been um, going down to Rogers Park. Um, a couple times a week um, to friend these families. So there's many ways that you can get involved. Um, Many of our guests and community and neighbors that come in through the Hope Center on a Saturday will actually share some of that with us. You don't have to ask. Mm. Um, But you'll see the hopelessness that they um, are experiencing, not being documented. Um, They do not have access to some of the... um, organization that our government gives out like food stamps and snap and some of the things to help them get um, a little leg up to get a job and so um, they are very willing to share and have us um, step into their life and them step into ours so that'd be a great place to start
2: yeah, that is super helpful. That's the context I cannot give being from Aurora.
1: Correct. So. <laughs> yeah. uh, let me just ask one question as we go. And if you give me just a little bit of freedom, we'll, we'll try to answer this in, in a couple minutes. Um, right now, on a lot of people's minds is what's going on at the border. And you're there. You spend time at the border. We see news footage. We listen to people's takes but you're there. Um, for a heart in the room that's sitting here going, my heart's breaking for what's happening, or I'm angry at what's happening, what's happening?
2: Yeah, so the dynamics of the border, like everything you see in the news, are more complicated than what you see in the news. So World Relief works with a few church partners on the Mexican side of the border, which I wish I wish actually more of our attention would be on the Mexican side of the border, because that's where, in my view, the real humanitarian crisis is. Um, But for example, we work with churches both in in Juarez and in Tijuana, little churches without a lot of resources who are caring really heroically for large numbers of people who've come to the US-Mexico border with the intention of seeking asylum and are told right now, because of COVID, and most of us have moved past COVID, but it's still affecting our immigration policies. They're basically told, well, we're not doing asylum right now. Unless you're from a few certain countries that Mexico won't take back, then the US has really little choice uh, except for to consider your asylum claim. And that's especially true for Venezuelans, large numbers of Venezuelans coming right now. Um, one dynamic, we hear a lot about caravans. That was a question in the first service and I get this question all the time. Um, that's really intimidating to people. I think, a few things I would say on caravans. So caravans is when people travel together to the US border, often from Central America, and sometimes from Southern Mexico, with the intention of seeking asylum. One thing is, um, there's nothing inherently nefarious about a caravan. It just is when people group together because they think they'll be safer in traveling. If you read in the Gospels when uh, Joseph and Mary wanted to travel down to Jerusalem for, to celebrate Passover with their 12-year-old son, what did they do? They were in such a large group that they didn't notice their 12-year-old was missing. <laughs> Sounds kind of like negligent parenting, but we, will, you know, we don't understand their cultural context, so I won't judge. But that's just how people travel, and especially if you don't want to hire a smuggler, which is a, there's a whole industry of illegal human smuggling And sometimes, uh, if you want to avoid the cartels, you join a caravan. Um, The other thing I think is worth noting is there's this presumption that these people are coming to, like, invade. Actually, if you want to sneak into the United States undetected, you don't join a group of 3,000 people. Um, These people are coming with their hands out saying, please, would you have mercy on us? Some of them have really good cases for asylum. I've been, again, with our church partners on the border and interacted with people who I think had great cases. I've known some people who've won their cases having come through a caravan. Others, frankly, don't have very good cases. They're really fleeing poverty, which is sympathetic to me, but doesn't qualify you under our law for a credible fear of persecution. Very few of them, in my experience, have a nuanced understanding of U.S. immigration law, which is not a a knock on them because very few Americans have a nuanced understanding of U.S. immigration law. Uh, They have generically heard that this is a country that offers hope to vulnerable people, which is actually not precisely what our laws say. Um, but in some ways where it's, it's the blessing and the curse of a Statue of Liberty that says, give me your tired, your poor, your teeming masses, yearning to breathe free. That has not actually been our country's immigration policy for more than 100 years, but we still have that reputation, and people come seeking that, many of whom, notably, sisters and brothers in Christ. I mean, I've been in, those, in our church partners where I've asked if I could pray for someone. They never say no. In fact, often they'll turn around and want to pray for you, sometimes for like half an hour. Like These are people who've learned to rely on God in prayer in ways that I haven't necessarily ever had to. So it's a complex picture. Of course, people should go through appropriate processes. We should be vetting people. But I think it's important that we do have laws that offer protection to those who would face persecution and potential death if they were turned away.
1: Matt, can we just again thank Matt for taking the time to come and and be here with us? Go ahead and stand with me this morning. Um, Back at the community corner is Matt's books. If um, you're interested, I believe the most recent is Inalienable. Um, I got that wrong. Um, This is the end of kingdom over politics, but this is not the end of the conversation. Um, We will continue to be kingdom people and we will continue to have hard conversations and we will continue to grow and fight for truth. It's what God's asked us to do. And so thanks for your grace. Thanks for your willingness to sit in and lean in. And it's not easy, I get it. But there is truth, and we must stand for it. Uh, may you have an amazing week. May you know that as fathers, we have something for you next week on Father's Day to celebrate together that isn't about politics and that fun. So you can come as a father, and it's going to be a great Sunday. Hopefully see you then. Um, look forward to next week. Love you all. Have a great week.
0: Thanks for spending time with the Hope Collective. If you appreciated this message, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast or share it with a friend. You can also leave a rating or review, which will help other listeners find us online. Thanks again for joining us.